Hello, everyone, and welcome to this launch of the Institute for Ethics in AI in Oxford. Thank you for joining us. This institute is made possible by the historic philanthropic gift from Stephen Schwartzman to create a new centre for the humanities at Oxford. This centre will bring together seven humanities faculties. It will create a new state-of-the-art performing arts centre and a new centre for ethics in AI. The goal is to harness insights from the humanities, gleaned from a millennium of scholarship, and to apply them to the technologies of the future, such as AI. To do this, we will bring together philosophers and other humanists with technical developers and users of AI in academia, and business, and government. The ethics and governance of AI is an exceptionally vibrant area of research at Oxford, and the Institute will build on this work as it explores how AI is changing how we work, how we live, how our democracy functions. The Institute has gotten off to a very strong start by assembling a wonderful group of academics with more appointments to come, and by organizing an important series of stimulating events such as this. This evening, to help us explore the questions of AI and democratic culture, We've convened a fabulous panel, and I'm delighted to have this chance to introduce them to you. Professor Sir Nigel Shadbolt is Principal of Jesus College and Professorial Research Fellow in the Department of Computer Science. He is Chairman and Co-Founder of the Open Data Institute and a Fellow of both the Royal Academy of Engineering and the British Computer Society. Nigel has been unfailingly generous with his time, wisdom and commitment as we've sought to define the Institute in such a way as to mobilize the work in related fields across the university while optimizing its impact on the world beyond the university. Professor Hélène Landemore is Associate Professor of Political Science at Yale. Her research and teaching interests include democratic theory, political epistemology, theories of justice, the philosophy of social sciences, constitutional processes and theories and workplace democracy. Hélène is the author of the recent book, Open Democracy, published by Princeton, a vision for a new, more open form of democracy based on non-electoral forms of representation. Professor Joshua Cohen is a political philosopher and is on the faculty of Apple University. He's also a distinguished senior fellow in law, philosophy and political science at Berkeley. He has written on issues of democratic theory, freedom of expression, religious freedom, political equality, democracy and digital technology, good jobs, and global justice. His books include On Democracy, Democracy and Association, Philosophy, Politics, Democracy, Rousseau, A Free Community of Equals, and The Arc of the Moral Universe and other essays. And finally, I'd like to introduce the chair of today's panel, Professor John Thesoulis who is the inaugural director of the Institute for Ethics in AI and professor of ethics and legal philosophy here in Oxford. Professor Thesoulis until recently held the chair of politics, philosophy and law in King's College, London. He has degrees in law and philosophy from the University of Melbourne and a DPhil in philosophy from the University of Oxford, where he studied as a Rhodes Scholar. Previously taught in at Glasgow and here in Oxford, and has also served as a consultant on human rights for the World Bank. Since coming back to Oxford last year, he has brought insight and energy to the role of director of the Institute for Ethics and AI, and we're delighted to welcome him back to Oxford. Over to you, John. 
Many thanks for that very kind introduction, Louise. And before beginning our discussion, I want to say a few words about the mission of Oxford's Institute of Ethics for, for Ethics in AI. A good place to begin is the word ethics itself. For many people, ethics is just one form of regulation among others. Many, perhaps big tech companies among them, regard it as a soft form of regulation to be distinguished from law, which is enforceable. Indeed, on a cynical view, ethics is a matter of facile mottos like don't be evil, which can be hard to distinguish from corporate PR. But that is not at all how we understand ethics in the Institute. For us, ethics refers to the ultimate values that human beings should respect and pursue, values like justice, equality, and the common good. And to the reasons for action generated by those values in particular times and places. On this expansive view of ethics, it is not one form of regulation among others. Instead, ethics is the foundation of all forms of regulation, whether political, economic, legal, or any other kind. It is ethical judgment, for example, that determines whether a given kind of activity, such as the use of self-driving cars or online micro-targeting, is an appropriate subject matter for legal regulation. And if it is, what form those laws should take. It is because we understand ethics in this way it is because we understand ethics in this way that the Institute gives a central role to the discipline of philosophy and why the Institute enjoys the great privilege of being based in Oxford's Faculty of Philosophy. Philosophy is the academic discipline with a centuries long cross-cultural track record of seeking to address questions of ultimate value through the use of reason. And one of the most distinctive features of the Institute here at Oxford is that it aims to bring the clarity and rigor characteristic of the best philosophy to this nascent field of AI ethics. But philosophy by itself is not enough. The ethics of AI is inescapably an interdisciplinary endeavor. Most obviously, it requires dialogue with computer scientists who are at the forefront in the development of AI technology. And it has been immensely gratifying that the Institute has already established close ties with brilliant colleagues in Oxford's Department of Computer Science, many of whom have themselves reflected long and hard about the ethical challenges thrown up by their research. However, there's another reason why philosophy by itself is not enough. A truly rich and informative ethics of AI has to recognize that its ethical questions assume a significantly different shape depending on the domain of human life that is in question. The use of robots and AI to carry out surgery or to make medical diagnoses, for example, raises very different ethical issues from their use as judges, law enforcers, or lethal weapons in warfare. This is one reason why it is significant that the Institute for Ethics in AI will be housed in the Schwarzman Center for the Humanities drawing on expertise from a range of other humanities disciplines from classics to music. And also why we're establishing close connections with other parts of the university, such as the Oxford Internet Institute and the Blavatnik School of Government with whom we will soon be advertising joint posts. 
One final aspect of the Institute's mission I want to stress is public engagement. This doesn't simply mean that my colleagues and I are interested in producing work that is accessible to a wider public beyond academia and which can inform policy decisions and enhance democratic debate, although it does mean that too. It also means that we hope that the Institute will operate as an inclusive forum in which a broader public in this country and globally can engage in discussion about the challenges and opportunities of AI. In his work on political philosophy, the politics, Aristotle wrote that the person who lives in a house often knows more about it than the architect who designed it. All of us are increasingly living in a society shaped by AI. So it is vital that the voices of those who are affected by AI applications, such as contact tracing and facial recognition are heard, not just those who create, deploy or profit from those applications. And this is what brings me to the topic of our discussion tonight. Philosophers can play an important role in AI ethics, but they cannot resolve these conundrums by themselves, not because they're not wise enough, but because they have no political authority to do so. In a democracy, that authority ultimately rests in the citizenry. And that is why we thought that as a topic for our launch event, we could not do better than to explore the interplay of democracy and AI. Democracy is not just one of the domains of activity in which AI operates, it is also the overarching system of governance that is ultimately tasked with addressing its challenges and its opportunities. So it's my pleasure now to invite our three panelists to join me. And as they do so, let me remind you that there will be a Q&A session uh, towards the very end in the last half hour of this event. So please do use the chat function in YouTube to ask your questions. So thank you so much and welcome everybody. Um, perhaps we can begin in the sort of characteristically perhaps pedantic way of philosophers and just to clarify the key terms here, both democracy or democratic culture and artificial intelligence. So when a lot of people think about democracy, they think about majoritarian decision-making, especially in the context of elections. And then they think about formal political institutions like legislatures that enact laws, courts that adjudicate upon them, um, administrators that implement them, police that enforce them. But the notion of a democratic culture goes beyond purely that formal set of institutions. And I think one of the things that's most impressive about the work that both Hélène and Josh have done is that they've emphasized the need for democracy beyond this institutional context. Yet I also know that you somewhat disagree about the nature of that broader context. So perhaps Josh, you might begin by explaining in what sense democracy needs to be broader than this purely institutional focus. <clears throat> yes, th thanks, uh, thanks very much, uh, John. It's really a privilege to be here. And uh, I wanna, if I may begin by offering two congratulations, one to you for your position as a director of the Institute and the other to Oxford for having had the good fortune to be able to bring you in as the head of this. I really can't think of anyone who's got uh, the combination of intellectual breadth and, and ethical sensibilities that uh, better uh, suits him or her or they to uh, playing this role. So congratulations to 
both of you. Very Thanks kind. for the opportunity. Um, you know, I teach courses in uh, democratic theory, as does Ellen, and often you begin the course in democratic theory uh, by discussing what are commonly called minimalist theories of uh, democracy. Uh, on minimalist theories, democracy is a matter of uh, a competition for power that's resolved through elections and then a peaceful transfer of power subsequent to the elections. And this is a view that's presented classically by Joseph Schumpeter uh, in his book, Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy. Noberto Bobbio present, and, and uh, Adam Shavorsky, a contemporary proponent of it. And, and then when you're teaching the course, you always say, well, that's fine, but it sets the democratic bar pretty low. Um, after January 6th, it doesn't seem like such a bad idea um, to peaceful transfer of power, sort of looking better, um, really good. Still, I don't think we should let those uh, hideous events of January 6th change the basic conception of democracy as a, something more demanding, a form of self-government, a form of self-government in which the people understood as uh, free and equal have good expansive opportunities for open communication and organization to form ideas and opinions that they aim to translate into uh, uh, programs that turn into laws and, and policies. It's a, democracy isn't simply a, a, a peacefully regulated contest for power, but also an informal, open-ended, fluid, dispersed public discussion of matters of common concern. And that discussion in turn shapes public opinion. It shapes and is shaped by civic activism and ultimately the exercise of formal political power. I think of it as a a form of power based on an ideal of substantively equal communicative uh, freedom. And that system requires good and equal chances for people to express views, access its instructive information from reliable sources, to hear a wide range of views, and to coordinate with other people to explore interests and ideas with an eye to uh, uh, developing common understandings and advancing common concerns. And you know that system of rights and opportunities, that substantively equal communicative freedom, uh, depends in turn on a set of norms and dispositions of the participants. Uh, so there needs to be a concern for truth, for getting things right, and a conception, not Thrasymachus's conception, but a conception of politics as an activity in which the concern for truth uh, matters. Uh, doesn't that go without saying? Well, apparently not. Um, uh, moreover, a concern for the common good. The politics is about competing and conflicting views about how to address common shared uh, concerns. And I think also a concern for civility, which I don't understand as politeness or etiquette, but is acknowledging that the way you should argue and justify is in ways that respect and acknowledge the equal standing of other people. That's what I think Rawls meant by the duty of civility. Now, some of us um, are old enough to remember when digital technology was supposed to be great for all of this. Uh, when uh, we finally had the technological foundations for a renewed and reinvigorated Habermasian public sphere, uh, lowering the barriers to entry uh, of um, speaking and listening and in, uh, engaging. But, you know, the bloom fell pretty quickly from the digital rose. Uh, still, I think the right way to think about the democratic idea 
and the technological challenges to the democratic idea is by rooting the understanding in this more ambitious conception of democracy as something more than a peaceful contest for power with a peaceful transition as incredibly important as that peaceful contest and transition is. This is a much richer notion of democracy. It involves citizens getting together as it were as free and equal citizens to deliberate about the common good, to make decisions about the common good and their deliberations are structured by norms like respect for the truth, civility and so forth. Helene, you would agree with most of that, I think, wouldn't you? Yes, I think I share uh, Josh's vision of, uh, you know, of democracy as a, as a deliberative democracy where, you know, laws are legitimate only if they've been the product of a um, reasoned exchange of arguments amongst free and equal. So that's sort of the ideal. But I think that um, the way I look at democracy in general, it's, it's as, a, as a procedure to solve collective decisions uh, where power is distributed equally, discursive and voting power, I should say. But it's also more generally a, a regime form and even more broadly, a type of society. And it's highly plausible that you can't have a functional democracy in the narrower sense of a procedure or a regime unless you have a functional um, uh, democratic society. And, and what do I mean by a democratic society? I mean what Tocqueville meant when he, when he first visited, basically. It's a society characterized by um, uh, an equality of conditions. And it's really something that I... I um, uh, that you, you fully understand only when you come from a country where this um, equality of condition is lesser or inexistent. For me, it was a revelation when I, when I moved to the US. Even as, interestingly, the, the actual um, American regime is not that democratic at all. But the, in fact, in recent years, has become expressly plutocratic and, and um, you know, oligarchic. But, but the, the, the equality of conditions is still there. And it's, it's, uh, it's, I think it's essential to the stability and viability of a of a democratic regime. Helene, can I just pick up one point? You've published this important book recently, Open Democracy, which takes issue with the kind of view of democracy that Josh and Habermas and Rawls have. So the idea there is that there is a twin track of democratic deliberation decision-making, the formal track of elected representatives and others, yeah. and then this informal track that sort of sets the agenda, but doesn't actually decide the decision-making is made in the formal track. You've argued for, in some sense, um, a less emphasis on elections and more on citizens making decisions themselves. Can you just bring up, bring out that disagreement a little bit with Josh? Yeah, so I think it, it's, uh, it's just that I think in the 18th century, we, we took the wrong turn by reinventing uh, democracy in an electoral form, when I think there were other forms of democratic representation that could have been available with a different ideological and conceptual apparatus, including but I call lotocratic representation based on random selection, something closer to the ancient uh, Greek uh, practices. And also to some Swiss practices at the time that were not all that democratic, to be honest, but at least distributed power somewhat equally among the, the pool of candidates. Um, and and my, my, it's not a real problem, I guess, but my, 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 my divergence, my, my difference, um, a disagreement, let's put it that way, with uh, with Josh, is that um, he's still wedded to this um, 
uh, dichotomous uh, Habermasian vision of a space where you have like the politicians and the officials who make the decisions and then the space for citizen, which is wild and free flowing and where magically somehow an agenda for the official uh, uh, sphere is supposed to emerge. And I, I don't buy that, that, that um, there's this um, invisible market of wild deliberation, uh, this sorry, invisible hand of, uh, you know, deliberation in the wild that can set up that agenda perfectly uh, uh, efficiently. efficiently. And, I, and I also think that distinguishing between a professional class of politicians and, and ordinary citizens is, you know, in the end, I think it's, uh, it's, it's not a good thing that if we want an authentic democracy, we need to um, rotate um, ordinary citizens in and out of power and specifically in and out of legislative functions, but also in and out of the techno administrative structure where most of the laws are being made actually. And meanwhile, we should also curb the power of executives and, and return it to um, the function of executing the law and not making it. So that, that's, um, oh, that's so roughly the, 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 the vision. So open democracy is not direct democracy. It's not all decisions no. being made by the whole populace. It no. is citizens representing citizens rather than an elite class representing citizens as elected representatives. Now, what I think would be interesting to come back to this issue a bit later to see whether AI digital technology affects how we should adjudicate these two views. But Nigel, I want to move on to you and just ask you the question, what do we mean by artificial intelligence? And also to ask you uh, perhaps to expand on something that you said in your book, The Digital Ape. You said there uh, quite strikingly that you're more afraid of what harm natural stupidity rather than artificial intelligence might wreak in the next 50 years of gradually more pervasive machines and smartness. Yes, thank you, John. Um, it's, it's very instructive to remember that the 1950 seminal paper by Turing, Computing Machinery and Intelligence, actually was published in Mind in a philosophical journal, uh, which really kicked off 70 years now of intense work around the methods and techniques of artificial intelligence. Uh, those methods and techniques have expanded extraordinarily. When you try and define AI, it's a little bit like trying to define life. You know, there are many variations and many variants. The thing to remember, I think, over the 70 years of the expansion of methods and techniques, and we now have a huge toolbox of methods from structural encoding of causal principles to statistical methods, the latest forms of machine learning, many different types of ways of representing and reasoning about the world. That the thing that's really powered um, much of this acceleration has been the extraordinary and exponential increase in raw compute power, the technology underpinning the algorithms. So that we now live in a world that's completely diffused with ubiquitous and pervasive supercomputer, supercomputers that we hardly acknowledge. Running loads of AI algorithms to recognize speech, faces, shopping patterns, suspicious regions of medical images, and the list goes on. What we have here is an extraordinary set of task achieving programs, very narrow, specific AIs tuned to the specifics of particular tasks. But those are the tasks that we've determined are important, worthwhile and profitable. And I think the application of extraordinary computing power driving AI with access to huge swathes of our data presents us with a host of ethical challenges, dilemmas of governance and choices about the ends to which that's all put. 
uh, my view in that quote was that AI augments us in the best case, it empowers us. And in the worst case, it'll oppress and disenfranchise us. And those choices are ours alone and not likely to be emerging from any self-aware machine anytime soon. So let's leave that to one side. And my point in that quote was that we might choose to put the machines in ascendancy over us, but that would be a case of natural stupidity rather than artificial intelligence. And I think we're seeing fantastic progress in the taming of particular problems that have large search spaces where the nature of the space being searched and what counts as a successful outcome can be very well specified. And we've just seen recently the fantastic results in uh, protein folding, um, obstacle avoidance, face recognition, many, many examples. Um, but I think what we're appreciating and in this conversation we'll explore more is that all of this can't just be instrumentalist. AI's use will reflect values that we collectively take to be important. And I think uh, along with this uh, idea of democracy, there was in its origination and through its philosophical history, a host of ideas around the values that we most prize, transparency, accountability, tolerance, autonomy, dignity, self-determination, reason, evidence, equity, and I think that's um, really important. You're seeing a real flourishing at the moment within departments of computer science, within AI conferences, within the, the community itself of discussions around value-based computing, human-centric AI. And I think we all now share this deeper concern. Actually, it's back to Bobbio's very uh, powerful uh, uh, um, uh, observation that the problem is that it's turning out that representation doesn't seem to be reflecting the interests and opinions of individuals, but rather organized group interests. And it's been uh, um, uh, what we see is that the procedure enables now large organizations to affect uh, control rather more than individuals and uh, democratic self-governance. And, and I think that's where a source of a lot of people's unease arises. So I've got a very straightforward and I think a uh, much more instrumentalist view of what AI is able to do at the moment. Great. So let me pick up on that point a little bit. So you're not seeing the action being in the development of um, artificial general intelligence replicating human capacities across the board. It is about more narrow applications and the emphasis is on human choice about which values these more narrow applications will serve. So that's very much an image of AI as a technology for which we're responsible. I just want to ask a question to all of you and just with a brief answer, because the question is, is, uh, is rather imponderable. Is democracy a technology? Is democracy simply a mechanism for bringing up good results, like good decisions? Or is there inherent value in the democratic process? Or if both, where, is, where does its value mostly lie? In the inherent value of everyone having an equal say as free and equal citizens, or in the fact that through this process, we get better decisions than we would through other processes? Just a short answer from all of you. Helen, do you want to start? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I think I'll just answer with um, an anecdote by Robert Dahl at the beginning of On Democracy, where he reports on uh, the story of Danish uh, Vikings traveling up a river in France. I'm from Normandy, so it speaks to me on many levels. And they were asked by a messenger calling out from the riverbanks, what's the name of your master? None, they replied, we are all equals. There's something intrinsically valuable about that. Stop there. 
but you also think in your oh yeah of course I also theory, think it turns out you end up making better decisions that way as well yeah. but I um, I often get criticized for overemphasizing that dimension so I thought <laughs> I so you think both that I dimensions. care about the yeah the right. so you've stressed um, the diversity epistemic diversity conduces to better outcomes Josh. Well, I think you're muted, Josh. I am, uh, but no longer. Um, first, uh, on the issue of intrinsic value, yes, and Ellen put it uh, powerfully. I, uh, it's uh, a, a form of uh, uh, decision-making among people con conceived as equals with, as Rawls described it, certain moral powers. Uh, um, the um, uh, in in his last speech, uh, uh, Martin Luther in Memphis, Martin Luther King said, "You know, the great glory of American democracy is the right to protest for right, not the right to grab stuff, but the right to protest for right." So, an exercise of that fundamental moral power. So, I completely agree with Ellen on the issue of. Um, at the same time, democracy is a form of uh, political decision-making and political decision-making is a kind of collective problem solving. Uh, I, I know of very little compelling conclusive evidence that democracy, there's some, but that democracy is consistently better at making collective decisions and alternatives, but it doesn't have to be better. It just has to be pretty good because there's, there's a limited uh, willingness to pay the cost of a system that has intrinsic attractions but sucks in other respects. So, uh, but, and there's no evidence that it isn't way over the line, well, good enough uh, to make uh, it worth having uh, democracy for uh, both of those reasons, but not as the system which somehow optimizes on problem solving capacity. It, do it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't need to do that. Nigel? Yeah, I think we'll come back to that notion of sometimes setting up an expectation that our AI somehow has a more perfect solution it can struggle towards and uh, or, or arrive at. Mm. Uh, and the point about this is there'll be there'll be fallibility all the way through these systems and there'll be edge cases we can't take uh, account of. I mean, the, the way in which AI can be at the service of the democratic process is around equity, availability of resource and insight, uh, uh, an explanation around facts of the matter where they can be adduced uh, and, and, and large participation and bringing uh, groups together. But again, we've seen that experiments with the mobilization at true scale of this falls into some really rather well understood problems now about um, giving people generally um, heterogeneous experience. Okay, let's move on to some of the issues around the deployment of AI applications in decision-making. Um, I mean, there's an obvious allure in having an algorithm um, resolve important decisions. I mean, it's a mechanical judgment-free procedure, so you're not at the whim of someone's discretion or judgment promises to be faster, cheaper, perhaps more accurate, less biased than humans. I mean, there were these harrowing studies of judges engaged in sentencing and their sentences seemed to be influenced by the time of day or whether they had lunch. 
and also just eliminating what Cass Sunstein calls noise, unwanted inconsistencies between various decision makers. So there is this tremendous promise, yet on the other hand, there's the worry that decision-making is somehow, through algorithms, is somehow incompatible with democratic equality, for example. Um, so there's been a lot of studies that talk about, for example, the ways in which algorithmic decision-making in, say, facial recognition um, or in um, having to do with criminal justice amplifies and exacerbates existing inequalities. For example, um, not being able to recognize people with darker skin tones or discriminating against people from poorer neighborhoods and so forth. Nigel, is this endemic to algorithmic decision-making or can these discriminatory unfair effects be, be mitigated? Well, when we design and anticipate these systems, when we think about the goals that we're going to put them uh, to work on, then we absolutely must, must reflect on, on this broad range of potential embeddings. Otherwise, you will end up with um, the classic pratfalls that we've seen in some of these areas. Now, you know, if you were, if you were uh, well accustomed to the notion that this would be a classification system within these boundaries for these outcome types, then that's one thing. But when these things are deployed in very broad, open textured contexts, you're really heading for trouble. And this is where I think the, the kind of philosophical context, the one that you, these are not entirely deterministic systems in, not in the sense that they run, but in the sense that which they're deployed and interpreted, the open texture of the environment and society in which they're deployed. Um, and of course, we can point to all sorts of very, and we have done in the past in our discussions, very exciting examples of human bias. Uh, the Kahneman and Tversky studies, this extraordinary uh, um, evidence that we're very susceptible to very simple um, distortions and effects in our decision-making. And perhaps our algorithms can help us edge us towards better decisions there. One thing, rather than putting the system entirely in charge, an earlier generation of AI systems were seen as decision support. What they did, and in some modalities explicitly did, was critique the human decision-making, trying to get them out of a local minima, some kind of local uh, preference or bias uh, zone they were in. So I think you can play this to um, support uh, human decision-making, but when you allow the system to simply be deployed without a broad range of appreciation of the edge cases, of the task to which it's being put, to critically reflect on that, you will end up with the rather poor examples we've seen advertised recently, I think in this area with facial recognition or bots online or whatever that might be. Does anyone else want to come in on that? I was just thinking that, um, you know, th there are different situations. If you take a plane, you don't really care whether you're driven by a robot or a human beings. If you're handed a sentence for a crime you've committed, you absolutely care about the reasons that, that, that behind the sentence. So I think um, comes down to this reason of this, this um, justifiability or the, the kind of reasons that we are owed as uh, human beings and citizens in some context. Um, so I, 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 I suppose like even the use of lots that I'm very much in favor of, um, in fact, was, um, turned down or avoided by 18th century philosophers because they, it, it had no rhyme nor reason. It, it, it was not um, easy to justify. And so they preferred elections because it was based on choice and consent and full rationality. And 
And, and so I, I do understand the worry about non-self-explaining or non-self-explanatory AI, where you, you're just given results with no understanding of, the, of how you got to those results. So this is an interesting point that it's not simply that we're interested in a certain kind of decision being within a frame of accuracy or fairness. It's also the reasons for the decision. I think this ties in with um, Josh's notion of the duty of civility, which is not simply about politeness, but about giving our fellow citizens the appropriate sorts of reasons for decisions that affect them, especially if we're officials. Now, there is a kind of major issue here around the explainability of AI. So I just want to quote something from AI scientist Judea Pearl on the deep learning style of machine learning. He says, I find many users who say that it works well and we don't know why. Once you unleash it on large data, deep learning has its own dynamics. It does its own repair and its own optimization. And it gives you the right results most of the time. But when it doesn't, you don't have a clue um, about what went wrong and what should be fixed. In particular, you do not know if the fault is in the program, in the method, or because things have changed in the environment. We should be aiming, he says, at different kinds of transparency. So you don't know why things went wrong, but presumably that must also apply to the case where things go right. So there's a kind of divorce between outcome and process. Uh, what do you say to someone who says, look, I just want to have the right decision don't really care about the nature of the process. This is a kind of abstract intellectuals concern. Josh? Yeah, so a few things on that. I wanna go back to the previous point about algorithms and just, and, and uh, I think in, in a similar spirit to what was said, uh, just one thing to bear in mind, this is a tour down historical lane. I mean, the development of a theory of algorithms in the 1930s is one of the most extraordinary intellectual achievements of the 20th century. And there's an important point about it that I just want to emphasize, which is, I mean, basically what happened was Hilbert has a program in the foundations of mathematics. He's concerned about completeness, consistency, and decidability. Gödel takes care of the first two problems, uh, his uh, incom famous incompleteness theorems. The problem of decidability is left. And in 36, 37, uh, Church and Turing solve the Entscheidungsproblem, um, another negative uh, result. And this is one of these cases where you have a, you couldn't solve the decision problem until you had a precise characterization of what an algorithm is. And that's what Turing proposes is, uh, I mean, Church had a different one, but Turing's becomes the dominant one, computable by a Turing machine. And now you could prove, you could so conclusively resolve the decision uh, problem. Um, a pure problem in the most abstract, rarefied areas of philosophy and the foundations of mathematics, that's the basis of computer science. I, I mean, it's an extraordinary case of following out a kind of intellectually pure problem and doing something that has, you know, obviously incredibly profound consequences. Now, one of the um, troubles is that I think people don't, don't have, a kind of grip on what an algorithm is. And so what you get are statements uh, about how, uh, you know, in, in allocation decisions of the kind that you described, the algorithm did it, okay? This is like literally nonsense, 
literally nonsense in, in the following way. There are a countable infinity of algorithms. Uh, so if you don't like the one that you're using, there are plenty more where that one came from. Uh, and it's a kind of fetishism attributing a magical property to the algorithm that you're blaming the algorithm. It's your fault. Look in the mirror. Don't look at the algorithm. I mean, I'm here very much agreeing with what Nigel has been saying about having a kind of clarity about what the values are that you're pursuing, what the sense of purpose is and how things can go. That's all on you. It's on your data. It's also on your model. It's not just a data issue, a model issue. So uh, this kind of blaming algorithms, I think is letting the letting people off the hook uh, in, uh, in, in a way that they uh, shouldn't be uh, let off the hook. Now, uh, the particular issue that you raise about explainability uh, that Udaya Pearl raises uh, about deep learning, that's really specifically an issue about deep learning. I mean, it's just a characteristic of the, it's not an AI issue generically, it's a deep learning issue because of the way that deep learning uh, models work and people, it's, it's, it's easy to over-exaggerate the uninterpretability of deep learning models. There are lots of people who are spending lots of time trying to figure out how you can make sense of what's happening at a node in a, uh, in a, neural, uh, in a neural net. Um, uh, but I think the reason that there's a demand for explainability appropriately is not because there's an intellectual curiosity about what's happening in the guts of the system. That intellectual curiosity can't be answered any more than you can answer the question of why, you know, the photon went through one hole rather than the other hole. It, that's, that's the way. Uh, it can't, I don't think it can be answered. The reason that people are concerned about that is because systems are not, as Nigel said, so these systems are not perfect and reliable. And you want to know about the, you may want to know why it succeeds when it succeeds, but you want to know that partly because you know it's going to fail. It's going to say that your dog is a dish towel and you want to know how the hell did it come up, you know, with a cl classification like that. And so I, 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 I think if I were 25 years old and starting out in philosophy and looking for a really fantastic problem to explore, I would start writing about explainability because it's an incredibly rich, complicated, philosophically, technically complicated area with huge practical importance. And I think there are about 18 different concerns that are being wrapped together in under the label of explainability. And there's enormous benefit that could come from somebody doing some untangling around those. Um, that is a fantastic rec uh, recommendation that hopefully some of our listeners will take up. Um, let me move to another issue. So we've talked a little bit about issues about fairness and discrimination with respect to algorithms. We've addressed um, albeit briefly, this issue of explainability. But of course, another worry that people have about the operation of um, algorithms is that many of them are fed on big data and there are issues about the data and in particular issues around privacy. And of course, a lot of this um, is the focus for criticism of what's known as surveillance capitalism and, 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 and the use of big data in order to push people consumer goods. 
But you might think that there is a more serious issue when there's a prospect to advance public health through the use of big data. So the question I'd like perhaps to address briefly here is whether AI in areas like advancing public health, for example, contact tracing and dealing with the pandemic, forces us to reconfigure how we think of the balance between individual rights like privacy and issues like um, the furtherance of public goods like controlling pandemics and eliminating them. And I just want to quote something um, that you mentioned, um, Nigel, in your book. You say, the single thing that every citizen and every corporate decision maker needs to understand is that the enormous data stores that government, government agencies, corporations, trusts, and individuals hold are as much a key part of national and international infrastructure as the road network. So this idea that these massive stores of data are in a sense public goods. Now we can debate about excludability and so forth, but they're, they're public goods in the sense that they stand to benefit everyone and it's benefiting one person. It's not at the expense of benefiting anyone else. But you claim that you know, we need to open up these sources of data in a way, however, that respects privacy. How do, we, how do we strike that balance that the data can be both open, yet at the same time respecting privacy? Well, I mean, th th this isn't a single uh, dimension of variation on this. We, we often talk about data as being on a spectrum from open to, to closed and private. But in fact, the conditions under which you vary that, I mean, I, I think what we appeal for in the open data movement is that a, a broader foundation of possible of data is made available under open and publicly open license conditions. And, and much of that is not about personal data. It's everything from when the trains run to uh, uh, where the roads actually uh, join one another or the legal addresses in a country. You know, you can argue about what you'd like as your, as your, as, as your uh, non-personal uh, public data infrastructure. The, the stuff that relates to individuals. Now, we're seeing an interesting change in, in, in perceptions at the moment of a public health crisis. There is a sense of a collective good. I mean, there are already laws and regulations which allow um, uh, various intrusions into your liberties and your, 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 your kind of rights of movement in the case of certain infectious diseases. We're, we're living under them right now. The issue about how your data is used. Now, I think we often get two heads up with this because we think it's bound to be about dereferenceable, identifiable data. But we've got lots of examples now where the data can remain in highly secure enclaves behind all sorts of level security. And my models that seek to understand the transmission of the virus at this moment or where the susceptible groups are in the demographic, my models can interrogate that data and the data never has to leave uh, a particular um, uh, set of secure data centers, for example. And, we're, and we know that because our patient records are held in that way and they're currently uh, linked behind various forms of, uh, of, of, of secure firewall. So the question is that the danger comes when that data is just kind of you know, shifted around the place with very little attention and thought to, to security. 
there's a different uh, aspect to this, which says, well, maybe that data will be better held uh, close to the individuals whose data it is. And so you, ex you assert different sorts of rights and interests over that data. And then the, uh, the, the decision is around how you can aggregate and collect that data together. So we're seeing a very interesting discussion at the moment, not just around the technology for securing and making data available as and when different groups and interests need it, but around the need for new kinds of data institution, new kinds of possibly cooperatives or mutuals where the data is stewarded for public or other collective interests. So I think that there's not a there's not a single answer to this. It might appear like that when you look at the kind of furore around contact tracing. Uh, but even then, there are good designs and much worse designs about how you do that effectively. But presumably, you're not saying that all this goes through some um, veto of consent by particular individuals with respect to their data. It, it can't in all cases. Uh, you've got to kind of understand where the urgency of uh, some of the use to which you want to understand that data. I mean, again, uh, patient records are good examples. There's a general sense that you know that within a trusted healthcare delivery system, there are limits and purposes to which that data can and should or might be put. And I think that we're becoming more sophisticated about our understandings around how you permit and vary that um, uh, level of, uh, of linkage. But there has to be very careful um, characterization of the rules and governance that sits over the top of that. So we don't see mass exfiltration, for example, of important information and insights to, to organizations that may or may not have a, a general uh, a broader public interest. Josh, I know you wanted to come in on this. Yeah, just, you know, this, the, uh, I agree very much with what Nigel is saying. I mean, there's real, um, uh, I mean, there's interesting philosophical work on privacy, but the technologies of privacy protection are important, sophisticated, secure enclaves, differential privacy. It's a whole bunch of things. But I want to come, though, to the issue about um, contact tracing, uh, you know, which this was a big topic around uh, um, the tensions that you were describing, potential tensions between protecting privacy and solving a big public health problem. And I think the issue, there are some very instructive issues here. And I'll start with a terminological point, but I think it has very large substantive implications. Uh, there is no such thing as digital contact tracing. There's digital exposure notification. Contact tracing is different from exposure notification. Exposure notification is you get a piece of information. The information is that you are within a certain relevant distance, 10 or 15 feet, for a certain relevant period of time, 15 minutes, to somebody who received a positive test for COVID. Now, I've taken several contact tracing courses. I have certification from Johns Hopkins and from uh, the WHO. As I, I never did any because the programs were so badly organized that my volunteering didn't get me anywhere. Or, or maybe they were well enough organized that they didn't want me and they knew that. But anyway, I, I, got, I took the uh, courses. And what you learn in a contact tracing course is that contact tracing is basically a human public health activity. Step one is letting somebody know about an exposure. It, but contact tracing is what you do after that. It's telling somebody how they can be 
tested, telling somebody how they can inform their employer, helping them to get some support while they're in isolation. It's not, uh, it's not exposure notification, not simply exposure notification. And I think the fact that so much intellectual energy went into uh, the, the arguments about privacy protection in uh, contact tracing is revealing of a kind of, oh, if I can use this you know, piece of bullshit terminology, over-indexing, I mean, over-indexing on the significance of information as opposed to pub, a pub, human public health uh, process. Now, that said, it's also true, so far as I know, um, that, you know, you look in the United States now, case rates are down and mortality is down. It's a very good, things have improved a bunch. And there's a discussion about why. There is literally no one, as far as I've read, literally no one who thinks that the rates are down because of successful exposure notification apps. A lot of people spent a lot of time developing very privacy protecting exposure notification apps. I was involved in one of those projects. It's great. But there, if you look at the literature on success stories and less successful stories about dealing with COVID cross-nationally, it is really not a story about some places that had fantastic exposure notification apps. The most popular exposure notification app is this Indian app, um, or I'll, I'll mispronounce it, Oroigia Setu, so with millions and millions and millions of people. I don't think anybody thinks it's really done very much good. So there's, I, I think the public discussion around contact tracing apps, actually exposure notification apps and protecting people's privacy and dealing with the public health issue and how to navigate these troubled waters is an expression of a kind of distortion in public discussion of the kind that I know is, you know, this is the kind of thing that you think about. Dealing with COVID from the contact tracing point of view is a human public health stand up large numbers of people didn't really happen anywhere to deal with these human needs. It's not about providing somebody with a piece of uh, information that they don't know what to do with and probably won't do anything with. Helen, do you want to come into this? Um, just that I was thinking about this connection between, again, democracy and, and, um, and these privacy rights uh, and property rights of our own data. And the problem is that it, with the current sort of structure of our so-called democratic government, a lot of these decisions, these trade-offs that you think societies are entitled to make between more privacy or more collective safety, they, they are actually made by, um, you know, um, groups of people that are not necessarily entirely representative of the larger interests of the population. Sometimes they are delegated to a technocratic sort of structure or agency or administrative um, uh, groups that 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 you know make decisions on on behalf of the rest of us, and so my own sort of take is that I would like to see something like a citizens' convention on AI, data, um, uh, digital technologies, or to talk about these issues from a, from a, an authentically 
democratic representative perspectives, if you will. And um, it could happen at the global level. I know that, for example, people in Australia, John Dreisek uh, in Australia is organizing something like uh, a Global Citizens Assembly randomly selected on genome, genome editing. Uh, and I'm sure we could do something similar on questions of uh, artificial intelligence. That, That's uh, a really interesting point. It's, there's a kind of lazy assumption that rights are counter-majoritarian norms and therefore not the business of majorities, but rather of technocratic experts, judges, and others. Well, that, so I, can, can, that yeah. itself is a mistake. I was going to add, actually, you know what, when I read your first question, I understood your first question, I was thinking, well, actually, our privacy rights democratic to begin with. I mean, it's, it's a liberal notion. Did the Greeks have a privacy right? I don't think so. You know, the business of the private citizen was the business of, of, uh, of the city. So it's actually interesting to see how, ex how, how um, uh, you know, stretched, to use your term, John, the concept of democracy has become. It, it, it encompasses all the things we deem desirable, including liberal rights, including human rights, including all these things. And, and, I, and I just said before that I, I do think of, of democracy as a way of life and a, and, a, and a society, but it doesn't have to be a liberal society necessarily. It doesn't have to be, I mean, we, we could be a little bit more, we could be a little bit more parsimonious in the way we think about a democratic society, I think. Okay, so if I could just say, if so I could just say a word about that, I, just in, in support of thinking of uh, privacy as having a value in a democracy, which is if you're constantly under threat of having everything about your life exposed, the idea that that is going to be empowering to you as a vigilant member of the uh, polity uh, I, I feels a little bit like a stretch. I mean, I understand there are a whole bunch of other foundations for the idea of a right of privacy, but I think there is a specific case that, uh, yeah, I I'm sure you agree. I, I, of course, I agree. I do think that yeah. if, you know, if you want citizens who are capable of thinking, they have to, to have the sort of like a freedom in internal space to develop, you know, yeah. ideas that are not, that don't need to be known by everyone. So I, I would second that. But still, I think that this triggers the thought that we may want to be, again, a bit more parsimonious about where those uh, concepts come yes. from. Yes. Okay, so I'm conscious of time. I would just say in defense of, uh, by the way, exposure tracing, there, there is research recently from actually a group in Oxford who, who claim that they've seen a 2.3% decrease in, in, uh, in, uh, in coronavirus cases. So, I mean, it is hard to do that work though, uh, absolutely. And um, yeah. okay. Okay, so a theme that is emerging um, is that Democracy requires genuine deliberation that's informed by the respect for truth, that offers reasons to our fellow citizens for our decision-making, and that is oriented towards the common good. A lot of people now think digital technology, AI, is subverting these processes of public reason. And they think very often that there is a kind of unholy alliance between on the one hand, big tech that is in the business of sucking up as much of people's attention as possible in order then to manipulate them in various ways. And on the other hand, exclusionary forms of populism that use social media in order to push out their message to get people more and more sort of caught up with extremist views and in filter bubbles and so forth. Um, and so there's this kind of very negative take. And I just wanted to read to you, um, a passage in uh, an op-ed recently published by the New York Times. The author is a very distinguished scholar, Susanna Zuboff. And she there talks about 
the epistemic coup that is surveillance capitalism, an epistemic coup comparable, well, also at a different level, but comparable in some ways with the coup that she thinks uh, took place or was attempted on January 6th in the, at the US Capitol. She says the following, um, in an information civilization, societies are defined by questions of knowledge. How was it distributed? The authority that governs its distribution and the power that protects that authority. Who knows? Who decides who knows? Who decides who decides who knows? Surveillance capitalists now hold the answers to each question, though we never elected them to govern. This is the essence of the epistemic coup. They claim the authority to decide who knows by asserting ownership rights over our personal information and defend that authority with the power to control critical information systems and infrastructures. So beyond any issue of algorithms, there is this deeper structural issue that she's talking about, this epistemic coup being uh, in a sense perpetrated by big tech in some sense in cahoots with government. Can I get any responses to that claim? Yes. Josh. Okay. Um, so, you know, Shoshana Zuboff has been writing about these issues for a long time. She's a fantastic sociologist uh, with uh, great insight, surveillance capitalism, very interesting book. Um, I read a statement like that and it reminds me of something that I often see in among people who have you know, deep association with the technology companies, which is there's a kind of we're so great chest beating. And then a few years later, we are so horrible. We are the most horrible. And it's all the most, whether it's the, the best or the worst. There's this, um, I think what she says in that statement is incredibly exaggerated and not about, uh, the concern, the kind of antitrust concern about uh, dominance over communication infrastructure. Uh, no, but the control of what people, so let me just say a few things about American politics, which she's writing about, despite its parlous state. First of all, it's true that Donald Trump got 74 million votes. It's also true that Joe Biden got eight mil six million more than that, the most votes anybody has ever gotten running for president. It's also true that there were a bunch of states that were central to Biden's victory, uh, including Georgia and Wisconsin, where there was a huge long play in state politics over a very long period of time uh, uh, that uh, Stacey Abrams in uh, Georgia, um, uh, Ben Wickler, among others in, uh, in Wisconsin, years of work, years of work, hard work, political work that produced that change. Thirdly, there is an absolutely decisive break in the Democratic Party from the, the market fundamentalism that dominated the party really since the 1970s. This is not about Clinton, this is about Carter, Gary Hart, it goes back a long time. Uh, um, you, if you look at the debates about the current debates about the stimulus, you, you, you see that. There's a real willingness to go big, uh, to do something about climate. 
and a real willingness to go big and to do something about this, you know, deep, persistent, profound set of issues about racial justice. Uh, when I lay that, parlous state, yes, absolutely, but I lay those facts alongside what Shoshana Zuboff says, I just feel like she's, um, you know, it's a 30,000 foot look at something where things look a little different when you get down to 29,000 feet, even. Yeah. You're on mute, John. I'm sorry, can I get reactions from the others? Sure, so I, I don't know. I also feel like this, is, this sounds really new and provocative, but an epistemic coup, I, all I'm thinking of is the, the actual political failure behind it. I remember Zuckerberg testifying in front of Congress and what a, what a, what a catastrophe that was, how incompetent, ignorant those um, senators in particular were. I mean, a disgrace. So yeah, then surprise, surprise, you know, uh, th then these companies uh, take over and do what they want and, and we are, we're left in our filter bubbles and eco chambers and, and no one has really any way to figure out where the truth lies. I, I think it's a basic political problem, lack of will, um, lack of regulations and over representation of corporations in Congress. The American Congress, 84% belong to the 10 wealthiest percent of the population hello, the working class completely ignored, then you wonder why, you know, they, they rise in, in, in both for Trump. So, so, you know, and, and we know for a fact that, you know, 10, so, so basically the, the over-representation of economic interests is the problem, not the epistemic coup by some companies. That's, that's pointing the finger in the, you know, the wrong way. It this is a really quality. interesting point, Ellen. I think in your book, you mentioned empirical research that says that if you control for the political views of the 10% wealthiest in the US, then there is no real <laughs> impact of democratic decision-making. Majorities are not causally uh, efficient once you control for the economic preferences of the richest people. Yeah. So I, mean, I think this is my word, and I kind of agree with Josh. That Bacon and Bartles, you know, a very famous uh, 2014 uh, article called um, Testing Elite uh, Theories of uh, Democracy. Yeah. I mean, it's contested, of course, but I, it sounds awfully plausible to me. I sort of wonder whether this, this sort of very vehement attack on big tech actually shrouds bigger problems about capitalism and its relationship with democracy. Uh, so let me just put that out there. I mean, John Rawls, your teacher and mentor, Josh, famously thought that his theory of justice was incompatible with capitalism, that you had to have a property-owning democracy or that you had to have some sort of socialist system that respected liberal rights. Um, is, is someone like Zuboff actually papering over the deeper issue? Because you know, if you think about even on an epistemic basis, prior to the advent of social media having sort of great impact, how did the mainstream media deal with the Iraq war? It's pretty much lined up in favor of it. How did it deal with the Vietnam war? So it's not as if there's this great history of successes. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I'm mindful of the fact that, um, you, you know, I, I, I'm 69 years old. And if I say I've, you know, heard this um, music before, uh, this is nothing new. It's like the geezer is you know, talking. That's what you do. You say, oh, no, nothing, nothing new here. But I don't know. There, there we are. I mean, I think... Uh, um, uh, it, it's um, 
all of the, uh, you know, consider just the case of political fragmentation, um, more or less than, um, this is not a nice example, but I understand, but more or less than in Germany, 1928, uh, fragmentation of the media in Germany, 1928, same deal. Uh, now that's, as I say, it's not a very good, but it had zero, like obviously zero to do with uh, digital, uh, digital technology. Um, if you look at um, the outsized growth in inequality, whether wealth inequality or income inequality, um, uh, not so clear that it's got, I mean, there may be something to do with the success of uh, uh, tech firms, but that's not the, I, I don't think on anybody's story, that's the biggest driver. And I, I think uh, outsized growth of uh, inequality has something to do with the nature of our politics. You look at the failures to go back to the previous point about, you know, the break from mar market fundamentalism. You look at the failure, the politically consequential failures around trade policy had nothing to do with digital uh, technology. Um, and all of this is consistent with saying that the uh, there are real serious antitrust issues uh, about the dominance of some uh, players and and uh, there's there's a lot of action on that. What it took uh, to get the action in the United States was for people to reject the Chicago School antitrust view that antitrust is all about uh, consumer welfare as registered in price. Even if you go to consumer welfare as registered in product quality, not price. So Dina Srinivasan has written fantastically on how Facebook competed on product quality. In particular, Facebook competed against MySpace on privacy protections That's until MySpace was gone. So the, the I mean, this is uh, the, the idea of attributing all of this stuff to the latest piece of technology. I think it's um, it, it's a little much. I want to um, let Nigel come in before we go to questions from the audience. Just because I think I, I think that's agree very much to what Josh was saying, but I would just say that one thing that is available to us, I think, in an age of huge amounts of data traffic, is to apply the same technology that we're using now, AI technology, much of it, to shape the traffic to allow these video conferences to happen to help us see where the information is flowing. Now, that may sound like, it. the reason that matters is we have very little visibility, either as individual citizens or as regulators about what the market concentrations are actually like. Um, and, and this isn't just around uh, the commercial context. It could just as well do with the facts of where concentration of data is in everything from safety data to scientific data. There is a real need to get much more transparency about the actual flows of data and their destinations. And actually, unfortunately, what we have is an arms race where everybody is trying to obscure and variously uh, 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 protect that information. I think if open data, which I see as a jewel to much of the prospect of algorithmic AI, algorithmic decision-making, is to offer a hope, it's to say certain classes of information we can recognize as being a good. And one is 
things like beneficial ownership and issues like where the data flows actually are in this uh, um, uh, so-called surveillance governance, partly because then we can address some of these alleged concerns. Are they real? Are they imagined? Are there actually concentrations that are invidious to uh, the conditions, the democratic conditions we want to foster? Okay, I'm gonna move now to some questions from the audience. So the first one is from Nicholas Henke and he says, there is so much progress on recommending systems learning, so much about individuals from data. Are there ways for this to help democracy and not harm democracy? So what about the positive side? Are there, so Helen, yeah. you, you think that perhaps um, uh, these developments can actually help have a more radical form of democracy? At least I tried to imagine what it would, um, what it could do to um, a completely reinvented form of democracy where uh, a lot of it takes place online, and you'd, you'd be on, you know, um, registered on a on a on a platform called Citizen Book, you know, like a sort of democratized, non-profit version of Facebook, and and you'd have um, artificial intelligence at your fingertips to help you synthesize knowledge about, I don't know, uh, various candidates at the global level or the European level or some large scale. Um, uh, political level to help you, you know, sift through various profiles and then choose the right candidate if we're still in an electoral mode for some issues, or um, answer a question when you know there's a sort of uh, electronic referendum. So I could see these these uh, um, technologies as augmenting and and uh, speeding up the process of making collective decisions. Uh, so, so that's one way in which I was, uh, you know, trying to imagine that, that these tools could be useful. You could envision, I, I know Jim Fishkin at Sanford has a, a artificial intelligence, uh, artificial intelligence facilitator for large scale deliberation. So that, that also cheapens the cost of large scale democratic in, innovations, uh, like deliberative polls, like citizens assemblies. So in the end, you know, I, I, I already um, had a chance to argue that point before, but I do think that we, um, the, 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 danger, the dangerosity of our AI depends in part on, on um, the, the quality of our democracies, right? If, if, if we are in control, if we know how to um, uh, instrumentalize uh, technology to good ends, then, then we'll be fine. But our democracies are in, push, in, in terrible shape. In fact, they are, they are hardly democracies at all. And so, and, and just to go back to the point about um, democracy as a way of life and you know, I also think the question of the workplace is, is really important in the sense that I wish we could all say we have no masters like those Vikings, you know, but if you if you're in a corporation and your healthcare depends on your boss and, you know, and, and in this pandemic, you could lose your job and, and you get depressed and you're not you, you have a master, you know, and, and can can you be free? Can you? It, so all these things are, are connected to my mind. Another question from Lloyd Rufton, regarding personal data, should we impose fiduciary duties on those who seek to utilize such data in addition to empowering data subjects through collective initiatives? Nigel? I think that's uh, uh, certainly something where th that exists in certain cases of sensitive data that, that, that you're not simply um, uh, free to do as and what you want with this stuff. I think, I think evolving an, a, a regulatory landscape and a legal landscape where there are duties of care over how data is actually deployed um, is something that we will see uh, emerge. As we start to understand the scope and range of it, we'll become 
very acutely aware. And, and you see this particularly, for example, in areas where age-appropriate design. So if you want to look at some of the most harrowing examples, then you look into examples of where uh, persuasive design is used uh, with respect to uh, interacting with children on children's apps. So um, I think there is uh, every prospect of needing to think about a balance of interests that place uh, fiduciary uh, 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 actual constraints on, on use of data. Yeah. If I may say, I do think also though it's, and I, I don't think we're dis in disagreement here, fiduciary responsibilities are fine, but you have, um, you've got a bunch of data that's a threat surface that somebody's going to go after. And so you, I think it's very important to think on, on the technology side of privacy protection. So, and there are a whole bunch of tools. There's differential privacy. You do on-device processing. You have a principle of data minimization so that you only collect the data that are uh, uh, needed. You have a, some sunset law that requires that the data go. You have secure enclaves because you know what you're what what you want is both to have the data protected against threats, but also, frankly, to protected to be protected against your own temptations uh, to do uh, the wrong thing. But so you want to protect it against yourself. Uh, so fiduciary obligations, all, all, but I think discharging those in a way that gives a kind of technological set of, that wraps the protections in um, a pretty secure technology is uh, an important strategy. We've talked about some of the um, power structures and power imbalances that hinder the operation of democracy, but Kerry Sheehan asks a question, which I'm going to summarize now, and that is, how can we reach a consensus, a democratic consensus about fairness with respect to the operation of algorithms when we know that people's conception of fairness is so heavily shaped by cultural norms and they differ so greatly? So there's so much cultural fragmentation within our democracies. Who gets, whose conception of fairness gets to win out? Who overrides whom, she asks. So I, I think that that's the wrong way to ask the question. It's not about who overrides who, it's who gets to convince who. And, and you know, um, again, I, I'm just gonna bring it back to my favorite thing, which are citizens, con citizens conventions, one took place in France recently on climate change. Very controversial issue. You had renters against landlords about um, mandatory housing renovations, you know, to limit green gas emissions. And so if you look at it as a, as a, as a negative sum game where, some people are going to lose, some people are going to win, and some people's views of fairness are going to override other people's views of fairness. It, it's, it's not never going to work, but if you look at it as, a, as an orientation toward the common good, where we all reason as citizens in a joint enterprise, we're trying to achieve a common goal. In that case, was curbing emission, green gas emission by 40% of the 1990s levels in the spirit of social justice. It actually works if you institutionalize it properly. You give it time, you facilitate it well, and, and you structure it well. It, it, it's a success story from my perspective in terms of uh, what it, they, they managed to, um, to produce as consensual solutions to very, very thorny um, value disagreements and practical disagreements. They voted at the end, at the, during the seventh session about those um, proposals, some of them, likely to be you know, very difficult to pass through the regular um, uh, legislative system. And they voted with like high percentage of, uh, of, of approval, like 85%, they, they convinced each other. So I, I believe in that. I, that's the whole idea of deliberative democracy. 
John, if I could add a point on that, and I agree with what Ellen is saying, but I also want to pick up on another way that the question is put, which makes me a little uncomfortable. I mean, it's a great question, and I can tell you it comes up all the time. Mm -hmm. And you won't be surprised to hear that um, if you start by asking, what's your conception of fairness? and you go around the room, I, you know, honestly, I don't care if it's collective deliberation or individual reflection, it's gonna be all over the place. If you say, here's a more concrete problem, is this fair? Let me give an example. There was a story in the Times a year ago about speech recognition systems. All the speech recognition systems have, have higher word error, existing speech recognition systems have a higher word error rate on African-American vernacular English. I don't know anybody, um, maybe I don't know enough people, but I don't know anybody who thinks, oh, that's, that's fine. There's no fairness issue there. Um, uh, if you say, well, you know, if you use African-American vernacular English, all you have to do is code switch and don't speak in African-American vernacular English. It'll, and you'll be understood fine. No one thinks that that's a fair solution to the problem. So if you take concretes rather than abstractions about what's your theoretical definition of fairness, I think you find a, a little, uh, considerably less of the kind of um, unending disputation. I don't mean it goes away because there are hard cases, but a considerably less of it than you find if you start with um, high level ab abstractions about what fairness is. That's right. Resolving ethical disagreements doesn't mean having to penetrate down to philosophical foundations of those. No, that's right. And what you what I find is, and I think this is very important, and it goes back to something that you said at the beginning about the importance of philosophy in this uh, enterprise, mm -hmm. I agree with you, philosophy is important in the enterprise, but it would be hopeless for philosophers to participate in the enterprise were it not for the fact that most people are morally intact. Yeah. Philosophers don't teach people morality. They help to clarify moral thinking. They help to make it more salient. But if you weren't in a universe of people who, you know, on the whole and for the most part had a kind of facility with moral distinctions and ideas, it would be, the enterprise would be hopeless. That's and just to amplify that, the, the fact is that this area has become practical by the operationalization of, of, of competition. Correct. So we're brought into contact with really interesting classes of moral question now, in particular cases. And I think that is why the discussion between computer science application builders and, and, and ethical, uh, philosophical things is just such a rich conversation because you can actually ground in just the way Joss says, uh, difficult questions in particular implemented realities. And this has a powerful pedagogic aspect. So one of my colleagues, Milo Phillips-Brown teaches ethics to engineers, but not by saying, well, here's Kant and here's Aristotle and here's Mill, now go ahead and apply that to your problems. But by working within the issues that arise in their research is kind of bespoke kind of ethics. And therefore, even if you have deeper theoretical disagreements, that doesn't prevent um, being able to resolve those more concrete problems, as Josh said. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna ask two questions. I think this left to be the last, yeah. I'm gonna run them together. So one is a question from Jose Marti, who's asking, 
Is there any specific contribution that AI might make in particular to strengthen the quality and extension of democratic deliberation? So that's about improving democratic deliberation by us. But there's another question from my colleague, Ted Lechterman, who says, suppose artificial general intelligence can someday generate legislation that is maximally just. Political equality is preserved because no one has any influence at all. Does this reveal democracy's value? Uh, I mean, I guess the point would be at that point, democratic decision-making would become redundant. So enhancement, redundancy, who wants to pick up either of those? So on enhancement, I feel like I, re I gave some examples of what I had in mind, but I, I just had another thought actually, which is about mass deliberation. Because the, the big puzzle for me is whether we can have quality deliberation, the kind that would be legitimizing of laws and policies at the large scale, or whether we always have to go through a representative moment where we delegate the task of deliberation to a subset, and whether random or elective. And from what I understand, maybe artificial intelligence could, um, again, because it helps speed up and clarify issues maybe, um, I, I'm not entirely sure, but I, I could envisage a role there for um, artificial intelligence in, in connecting, you know, humongous amount of people and, and to get to that ideal of, of like all the brains connected together via technologies. I'm not sure, I'm not sure it's remotely possible, but that's actually a, at least an idea I, I have. And then what was the second uh, question? Oh yeah, do we, uh, what would happen if we uh, had a perfectly just AI taking over? Uh, well, it would be God, right? I mean, that's pretty much <laughs> who that would be. Um, I, I guess it depends on how much we care about having reasons for what we do and, uh, and whether we want to have a master or not, because if, even if it's God, it's still a master in some respects. And I, I go back to the Vikings. I think we don't want to live with a master. I think there's a value in that, that trumps even getting the right outcomes. Isn't it always the case that there are people who could make better decisions than us? Like for example, someone could make far better sartorial decisions on my behalf, but I don't surrender yeah, my there, decision. There's something, I mean, I'm not saying like I, I'd want to uh, only, you know, I, I think there's a threshold of mistakes that, that we can't go below, but I think it's, we, there's a value in, in learning from your own mistakes and, and not getting to the right answer, but sort of deploying yourself, you know, as, as a human being in, in life through your own agency, I guess. Josh? Maybe what would happen, uh, no, no, no one could make better sartorial decisions for me than me. Um, <laughs> that, that I'll just, I'll, I'll put a stake in the ground there. <laughs> um, and, and if they tried to, I would make their life miserable. Well, I see um, Nigel's taken his tie off, so he's kind of emulating yeah, yeah. you in one respect. <laughs> uh, you know, with, with respect to the, you know, the uh, uh, redundancy, uh, Alain says, well, wouldn't that be like uh, God? And I, I guess... What I would hope is that it would be a deus absconditus. Yes, God had the good grace to let us get on with it. A good gr grace to let us make uh, continue to make a, um, a, a mess and, a, and sometimes a blessing out of our um, crookedly timbered lives. I do wonder whether one of the, um, you know, there have been various attempts at liquid democracy, liquid democracy meets the blockchain, all sorts of ideas about how you might change the delegative process or the, or the, one of the things that's been striking about um, uh, uh, recent developments in, in large scale platforms has been the emergence of citizen science, a, a participatory engagement that has 
hasn't been about doing all of the science, but it's been about really important aspects of helping the science succeed, you know, or, or tapping into people's enthusiasm to either collect the primary data or to clean data up. And I think that sometimes we we kind of elevate the decision making to the point where I think there's lots of ways of participating that these platforms can facilitate. And we found some fascinating uh, data. In fact, the Zooniverse group here in Oxford, Chris Lintot's group, did some fascinating work where they could actually look at large scale participation and run machine learning across those participations and find the sub groups within that large participation who were particularly effective as certain sorts of uh, of task or contribution. And I think there's a lot to be had in reframing this in a slightly broader sense of what it is to participate. Absolutely. People often forget the Universal Declaration includes the right to participate in science and culture. And arguably, that is a dimension of the sort of broader informal public sphere that is relevant, highly relevant to democratic participation. On that optimistic note, Nigel, I think we're going to have to draw it to a close. Thank you so much to our three wonderful speakers. I've really enjoyed this invigorating discussion. We've had to touch over lightly some really important themes, but I think it's been incredibly stimulating and hopefully given our audience a taste for the sorts of discussions we're hoping to have in future um, at the Institute. Thank you to the three speakers. I really appreciate for taking the time to be part of the launch. And thank you to everyone for tuning in and listening to us. Thank you. Have Thanks. a pleasant evening. Good night. Thanks very much. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.